0: Sufism may evoke the images of whirling dervishes or the sublime poetry of Sufi poets such as Rumi and Hafiz, but most people are not aware of its practices, beliefs, and spiritual ethics. Called the path of the heart, Sufism provides a compendium of wisdom that's both profound and practical. In this interview, we'll explore the richness of this tradition with my guest, Aida Hussein. Aida Hussain is a senior teacher and guide in the Inatya, a global organization dedicated to universal Sufism. A longtime journalist specializing in Sufism. She now teaches Sufi meditation, chanting, and philosophy with a special emphasis on Rumi poetry as a means of healing and evolving. She has led spiritual retreats worldwide, taught Sufi meditation to Buddhist monks in Tokyo, and been invited to the UN as a part of an international delegation of spiritual leaders. In this interview, Aida will introduce us to the mystical world of Sufism. We'll discuss the main teachings and practices and how we can use them to navigate our day-to-day lives more effectively including the use of her new tarot deck, the Sufi Tarot. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Hi, Aida. It's so nice to have you with us. How are you doing today? I'm well, and thank you so much for having me. Yeah, uh, thank you for being here with us. I'm so looking forward to uh, talking about the mystical beliefs and practices of Sufism, which is the inspiration behind your new tarot deck, the Sufi tarot. I don't have the deck yet, but I've seen the images and the interpretations of the cards. And I have to say that the cards are simply enchanting.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It was such a labor of love for me. And I'm not an artist, I'm a writer. And for me to work with two young artists in Pakistan on Zoom, I would meditate. These images would come to me and then I would try to explain to them on Zoom what to do and um, try to bug them as much as I could to make the images as close to as what I had seen. It took a lot of um, do-overs But it turned out okay, I think.
0: Definitely worth it because, yeah, the images are just so evocative and so, um, you know, it really captures the spirit of each tarot card. But we'll talk more about your your tarot deck later on. But for now, let's get to know you more, Aida. Uh, Tell us about your background and the role that Sufism has played in your life.
1: So, um, I'm from Pakistan, Rijdi. I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist for a long, long time. I was uh, studying in New York in the 80s, late 80s, and I met my Sufi teacher who was back home in Pakistan. And I was not quite ready to go as deep as I should have gone, but there was some seed which was planted. And that continued to grow. I was in art school in New York, um, got the bachelor's, changed my major completely, went into Middle Eastern studies and journalism so I could go deeper into Sufism academically. And when I was ready to bring together my academic interest, my love for the practices, my love for the healing, my love for the art, my love for everything, he had passed on So I started looking, and I found, well, uh, before I found my teacher, I I gave up, basically. And when I gave up, then I was led to my teacher, and this was about 18 years ago. So uh, the order that I belong to now is the Chishti order. It's called the Inayatia order. The grandfather of my teacher, the man who brought Sufism, to the West in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And what I love about belonging to this order is the universalism. It's very open to... It's not exclusive, it's inclusive, which is the spirit of Sufism. So what I loved about Sufism is that I could bring everything together on this path. I could bring together my academic Interest, my love for the practices, my art made, my art background, my writing background, and put everything together into this wonderful mystical path, which is so open, so accepting, and so honoring of of everything. In our lives. Okay,
0: that's beautiful. So you didn't grow up being a Sufi; it's something you discovered along the way.
1: Yes. So, uh, Sufism is not a sect. It's really a mystical path. It's not something that you are born into. It's something you choose to discover on your own. So I know some people are born into Sufi families, but uh, I I think it's because it's a journey, it's something one really takes part of as a conscious choice. So yes, I discovered it at the age of 19, and then it became deeper and deeper with time. I've been teaching... For the last 18 years, I've been running Sufi centers in different countries that I've lived in, and it's very much a part of my journey because it helps transitions between different parts of your life. A Sufi once said that there's no such thing as a crisis. A crisis is simply a transition not understood or handled correctly. So it's been a Mm. wonderful, wonderful um, I don't want to use the word' tool. it's been it's been a wonderful support system across different transitions in my own life,
0: so you say Sufism is a pathway, but mm. from what I read, it's been described as a mystical religion. Could you clarify, like what exactly is it? because I'm sure there are people out there who are confused about that
1: so Sufism is first of all, not a religion. Sufism is the mystical path of Islam. So every religion has a mystical path. Path. You have um, the monks in Christianity, you've got the Kabbalah in Judaism, you've got the Sadhus in Hinduism. So in Islam, we have the Sufis. But what makes Sufism dis- different from other mysticisms, other mystical paths, is that we're not renouncing the world it's a very, very strong emphasis of being in the world, but not of the world. So uh, we go deeper and deeper into our own hearts until we realize that our heart is really the heart of the universe and the heart of God, and there is really only one being, which is Vahadat al Wajud. So the order that I belong to is universal, and we believe very strongly that even though Sufism was formalized in the tradition of Islam, it's pre-existed, all religions. It's the heart of Islam, but it's actually the heart of every religion. Because if you believe in the oneness of all being, then all religions are dated back to some year. But Sufism has pre-existed, predated existence as we know it. In Sufism, we believe in the sound of who. In Hinduism, we have the sound of om. Yeah have the sound of
0: Ooh.
1: it's very much the same vibration and we believe that this is a sound that existed before creation and when we pass on this is the sound we will connect to and the sound will take us wherever we're meant to go so yes it was formalized in the Islamic tradition but it has predated any man-made religion and will um hopefully overflow the confines of any man-made or um, any man-made parameters.
0: Yeah, and I think poets like Rumi and Hafiz are really, really um, popularized it, because honestly, that was my first exposure to Sufism, um, reading Rumi. And uh, at, uh, I, I think a lot of people, their first exposure to Sufism is is through them.
1: Well, Rumi is such an incredible poet to read. If you look at his life, um, he had his heart shattered. Before he had his heart shattered, he was a scholar and a bit of a dry theologian. And then he met this wild teacher, Shams. And Shams transformed him and then disappeared. And then after he disappeared, Rumi turned into somebody totally different from who he was before. He was no longer um, a rigid academic. He found the heart quality after having the heart being broken. And that is what even 800 years after his passing makes him so relatable. What happens? What happens through the pains and traumas of life? Do you remain stuck in it? Or do you do what Rumi did? Do you use it to transform yourself and start becoming an empty receptacle for something else which is flowing through you? Uh, The Mm. first poem in his Masnavi, it's a collection of 25,000 couplets, speaks about the reed flute. And he says, learn to be like the reed flute. The reed flute was just a reed growing among many reeds, and it was cut, taken away from its place of origin, chopped up into pieces, had holes drilled into it, had the inside scooped out, was thrown in the oven. But now this reed flute is empty because it allowed the fire to burn it and to empty it. And because of that, it makes these exquisite sounds that you can, you are moved by the sound of the reed flute because it's empty. So learn to be emptied out because through that emptiness, you will be able to achieve more than you could with your full of yourself self
0: so profound so simple yet so profound
1: and that's what makes uh, Rumi's poetry so relatable because he takes little simple analogies like the reed flute or the chickpea or or an animal and he takes them to a different level and allows you to start questioning yourself and your own involvement
0: wow yeah, thanks for sharing that, uh, Aida. Tell us about the main tenets of Sufism, because I believe there are three of them, and that they're actually called the three-fold process of the Sufi path. So could you please break that down for us? Yes, so uh, Sufism is really a
1: path of purification. You're trying to purify your soul. Like Rumi said, polish the mirror of your heart you can see the divine. And there are different, there are many different methods of going about it. The main ones that Sufi speak about are Sharia, tariqa, and Hakika. Uh, to begin with the Sharia, which is the outer law. Um, how to purify yourself through your diet, through your um, hygiene, outer... Out, uh, Outer laws, basically, which keep you purified. Then there's the tariqat, which is the inner path, and that is when you join a mystical school, Sufi school, that are called tariqas, which is a way, a method of going deeper on the path. So there's the highway, which is for everyone, and then there's the path, the tariqa, which is not for everyone. You've already decided that you want to, more than just um, outward rituals. You want to go deeper into the symbolism and understand what it teaches you about yourself. And then the third state which you hopefully eventually arrive at is hakika, which is the truth. We're trying to arrive at the truth. So there are different ways of accessing this knowledge. Um, so it's like a hierarchy, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's a hierarchy. It becomes finer and finer and finer.
0: Okay,
1: Sufis believe that there are different ways of learning. So you can hear about something like fire. Yes, we've heard it's red, it's hot. Then you can read about it. And then you can read more descriptions about what it feels like to be burnt and the qualities of fire. Or the third method, which is what Sufis like, is to experience the fire, to really put your hand in and get a little bit burnt, to understand the experiential aspect, because hearing and reading can only get you so far. The real knowledge is the knowledge of the heart. And that is what we're trying to access through Sufism.
0: Yeah. And one of the ways that you do that is through uh, dancing and chanting and singing. Um, And it seems to play a really key role in Sufi practice. So uh, can you tell us why that's the case?
1: Yes. um, Music, sacred music and sacred movement are very much a part of my tariqa, my Sufi order, but it's important to differentiate that there are um, many different orders. Some of them don't have music or movement at all. The one that I belong to, the Chishti Sisra, is from South Asia. Then we've got the Turkish Mevlevi, that is also very tied into music and movement. And we call it Sama, which comes from the divine names uh, Al-Sami, which means the hairer the listener. So sama means deep listening. And when you approach sacred music or sacred movement, it's not a form of entertainment. You're really allowing the vibrations to flow through you and Mm -hmm. change you and transform you. And what music does, especially um, mystical music of all traditions, is that it bypasses the critical faculties of the mind. So especially for people who are challenged by stilling their mind who have a hard time controlling what we call the monkey mind music really really helps still it
0: oh yeah I mean I love music so I can attest to that
1: (laughs) and then if you want to go into more aggressive form of stilling the mind we have the movement of the whirling
0: dervishes the whirling dervish yeah yeah and that is from where exactly as we know it today, it comes from Turkey,
1: Konya. Yeah. And there's a wonderful story behind it. Rumi, after the loss of Shams, was walking through the streets of Konya, heartbroken, and he heard a coppersmith hitting the 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 the, the pot and pan in front of him with a hammer. And he closed his eyes. He put one hand up and one hand down like this, and he just started whirling. And while he would whirl, he would say things. And his students wrote those things down. And that's what we know as Rumi's poetry today. So um, Mm. it's a form of, it's not
0: really a dance, it's a form of worship. Is it 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 a meditation? Like, are they chanting? Are they, it seems like they're in a trance when they, when they're doing the dance.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So they're not singing, but there's usually either somebody else singing or chanting for them. And they go into this state of emptiness of of, um, non-existence. I met a whirling little who told me that every time I whirl, every time I turn, I'm transformed. And I go home and my wife says, who are you? Because it changes. You're not just turning around for fun. You're turning yourself around. You're removing yourself from the center of the universe and putting the divine there. And when you learn to experience life without your ego, everything changes. So that is what all our Sufi practices, the music, the movement, the chanting, the meditation. And you're
0: a singer, right? You actually sing. Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah.
1: I am. And the first song I ever recorded was actually Rumi's Song of the Reed, in which he Mm. talks about the reed flute and what it represents in our own journey, allowing ourselves to be emptied by life. So you're no longer just like a lifeless piece of wood, but by being hollowed out, you can let this divine breath flow through you. So it's in Persian, but I, I learned a little bit just to be able to uh, sing it in its original, authentic form.
0: Mm. Wow. So, so this is one way to heal yourself, right? Singing and dancing. Are there other ways that uh, Sufism do the teachings like that support your growth and also help you in your healing?
1: Absolutely. So we have um, breath work. Breath work is really something they say the first, the last lesson on the Sufi path is your breathing. So we have the breath work. We have chanting. We have meditation. We have the subtle centers, which are like the Nadis which are called the latif, but they are like the chakras. And we're trying to activate and awaken them. The chakras are in a straight line that go up. The latif are actually not. It's a straight line. And then there's also a horizontal line. So we have the vertical axis and the horizontal axis. And it represents your connection with the divine, as well as the connection with the world. And it's bringing them together. Another reason that our uh, chakras or the are not linear is that we believe that the spiritual path is never linear. The journey is never linear. It's more of a spiral. So you go around, you end up in the heart of the hearts, in the center, and then you begin again. So we don't um, reach this place of fana, which I guess you can describe as nirvana, and stay up there. Oh, no, you're humbled again right away. And then you need to begin the learning process. And it's constant. It's continual. And it goes on and on for as long as we live.
0: What so, are they called? Did they have a certain name? So if people want to find out more about these modalities, what um, should they be searching for?
1: Um I mean, one can have a very general Google search on Sufi healing, but if you want the specifics, uh, my Sufi order has a web page called inITia.org, and they have a section which tells you exactly what to do with, with these healing modalities and how to use them. Um, so as I was saying, there, there's breath work, there's chanting, there is uh, meditation, there are the subtle centers. And then we have other contemplative methods of tracing an impulse back and clearing impressions, muhasibah and marakabah. And then we have a thing called sobat, which I think people love the best because it just means that you can just sit with a very, very evolved human being like your teacher, and through their energy, you will be healed. Um, I like to think of Sufism as more of a conscious journey. of of evolution rather than just wanting someone to have a magic wand and transform and heal you. But without a doubt, uh, these great beings have these incredible powers of of balancing and transforming and changing you with just one glance or one encounter. Sufism, interestingly, is not a verb. It's not a noun. It's a verb. So it's a process of becoming. It comes from the Arabic word, the savuf, which is a process of purifying. So it's a constant journey. And it's very hard. I think the most evolved Sufis will never, ever call themselves Sufis. They say we are on the Sufi path because nobody's ever fully there. We're all just walking together to similar destination.
0: Interesting. And you were able to channel all your knowledge on Sufism into this beautiful tarot deck that you created, the Sufi tarot. How were you able to do that, Aida? Let me
1: tell you the the real story. The real
0: okay. story. <laughs> <laughs> the real story. I had a As opposed arm. to the <laughs> glamorized one. <laughs> uh, the most glamorized one. I had a broken <laughs> arm, a crushed arm.
1: We oh. were in the middle of it was a lockdown. I couldn't go out anymore. I remember that.
0: Yes, I think we all do.
1: <laughs> I just started meditating. I just started meditating and I found this old, beautiful Rider Waite-Smith um, tarot deck, at the back of this bookshelf, actually. And I started shuffling with one hand and I loved the way the images spoke to me, but I felt very unrepresented by them it was very Eurocentric. The images were, again, so powerful, but they did not represent me. So I started researching a little bit. Again, it was funny because I would do the Google searches with my left hand. And I learned that um, tarot came from Egypt. And it was picked up by the Italians and it took on a more medieval Christian flavor during the Renaissance. And a lot of the aspects already existed, they were just modified and adapted. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful way to bring together the East and the West. And what if there was a tarot deck, which honored both? It honored the Eastern Islamic um, Egyptian origins, as well as the development and the evolution in Europe. And so we had first the Italian deck, Then we had the French Marseille deck and then the British Rider Wade Smith deck. So it just really took off. But this is the foundation. What if I could actually bring everything together? So I started searching into my 34 years of experience, academic and experiential and teaching and just put together everything. I spent four years at art school in New York. All my art sense, whatever little I learned, everything I put into this project, because it was such a powerful way for me to bring together two traditions which are viewed as being so distinct, and yet they're not. They're so similar. The healing, the journey of the fool. Rumi has a poem called The Fool's Journey. Um, it's all about the young soul in search of truth. And that's what the journey of tarot is. And that's what the journey of the Sufi path, it's a path. You're on a journey. It never ends until you're alive. You're constantly traversing these terrains and sometimes they are totally unfamiliar. You know, we have the fool over here. Yeah.
0: So is it like um, the hero's journey, like Joseph Campbell's? Hero's very, very
1: much, very much yeah. so. But yeah. the It's called the fool's journey. And I had an issue with the word fool because it showed that the person is foolish. It doesn't mean that he or she is foolish. They're young and they're naive and they're open hearted and they want to learn what's out there. And they're in this perfect state of what we call tabakul, of just pure belief and faith that I will be taken care of. So that is the journey of the so-called food in tarot. And that is the journey of the person on the Sufi path, on the mystical path that, okay, I don't know what's there, but I really am being called and I need to start walking. And I don't know where I'm going to end up, but I'm going to be okay. Yeah. And I love the, the, the confluence, the similarities between these two traditions, which I hope I've been able to bring together.
0: Were you able to do that by yourself or did you need to consult um, experts in, you know, Egyptian mythology or anything like that? Um, One of the cards is the magician card. I
1: wanted to call him the alchemist. I don't know where he is, but um, I wanted to show a scholar sitting on a table with all these books and through the power of his mind, he's making the papers fly up. But uh, to dress him up as a scholar, there are different turbans which people wear. There is the cleric's turban, and then there's a scholar's turban. So I did a lot of research to make sure that everything which was represented visually was not a culturally, um, was culturally, was not cultural appropriation, and be that it was appropriate. I'm not going to have a... Um, an academic dressed up as a cleric. So there was a lot of research which was involved. I'm really lucky. I have some wonderful friends who are academics and professors. I would uh, run things by them the whole time. This is the Rumi quote. Is this authentic? Can you give me the source? Many of the things we see today on the internet are just made up, especially uh, they've A lot of things have been, make, been made up. It was important for me that whatever I wrote and put out there uh, stand the test to either the, a layman or the most sophisticated academic there's nothing in there which is inappropriate or inaccurate. So there was a lot of research a lot of research involved.
0: Yeah I think it's so important to be sensitive to these traditions and you know avoid cultural appropriation because that that is happening quite a lot these days and and I think it's because of uh, the fact that you are a global citizen you've lived in a lot of places. I think that's really, really important. And uh, speaking of confluence of traditions, I read that you actually taught meditation to Buddhist monks in Japan. So yes. what was that like? That was really surprising to see that they, they're they actually open to learning other, other traditions and other forms of meditation. What was that experience like for you?
1: I belong to this UN group called the Global Peace Initiative of Women, And what we do is we bring together female spiritual leaders as opposed to men because there have not been many female uh, leaders. And this was one invitation I was extended through them in which I was in Tokyo teaching Buddhist monks uh, Sufi meditation. And it was very interesting because I was sitting on a stage with a big golden reclining Buddha behind me. And these monks who were sitting before me had the most perfect posture that I've ever seen. And here I am telling them to sit straight. It was a bit humbling. But I picked the meditation. um, I picked a meditation which I thought would speak to them because there's a lot of ancestor um, reverence in their tradition. So I picked a Sufi meditation which you visualize a master, saint, or prophet, or a guide. And then you extend a white, light, rope of light from your heart to their heart, and then to a subtle presence beyond them, and then to a subtle presence beyond them. And eventually that white rope of light goes to the divine. And I do not use the word God. I'm very cautious because people have different words that they use in their own traditions. I use the word divine. And so many of them came up to me, said that they could relate to the Sufi practice. They were amazed at how similar it was to what they did in their own tradition. So it was incredible. And also we used the elements of earth, water, fire, air, and ether as we were feeling our breath. That's another practice I shared with them. And they loved it because that's something they have in their tradition as well, the elements. So it's incredible when you try to look for similarities rather than
0: differences. How many more I know if are? we can do that there would be so much more peace and understanding and cooperation if we can find those commonalities in our belief systems and okay, yeah. you should write a book on that because <laughs> you seem to have I should, I done should. It successfully <laughs> yeah yeah that's a very valuable skill set. All right, Aida, it's been so wonderful talking to you. Uh, Thank you so much for being here and sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. And the great work that you're doing. I love your podcast. I love your blog. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Very quickly, I just want to let everyone know if you're interested in purchasing or learning more about Aida's new deck, the Sufi Tarot, you can visit the SufiTarot.com. Is there anything else you like to add to that, Aida?
1: Um, no, I hope it answers all your questions. And uh, we're all on a journey. So
0: may it be easy and may it be love. Yeah, and thank you for being part of our journey on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. You have a beautiful rest of your day. I will. And you too. Thank you. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.